Hey guys, what's up? How are you doing today? Welcome to this episode of the Grady Pratt Experience. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the Indian Act of 1876 and its current implications. Now, you may have probably heard of this contentious piece of legislation before, whether it be from the news or even your Twitter feed. But do you know the reason why it was implemented so long ago? what the act encompasses, and the issues that come with it, and even why it has stuck around so long despite those obvious issues? All of this, along with more, will be answered in today's episode. And with those answers comes the far-reaching negative impacts of the Indian Act and its attempt at assimilating the indigenous population of Canada into the Euro-Canadian population that have lasted for over a hundred years. Almost a hundred years ago, in 1921, a man named Duncan Campbell Scott said this now famous quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not an Indian that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. This was the man who at the time was the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. He was no random person. And this quote from him is a perfect explanation for why the Indian Act was put into place, to assimilate. Duncan Campbell Scott implies this Indian problem is the reason for the assimilation of the indigenous population of Canada into the new European one. Although it does not appear immediately apparent what he is referring to when he says the Indian problem, and there is no exact definition for it either. A quote that helps us gain insight into this problem is one from John A. MacDonald in 1879. It goes, When a school is on a reserve, the child lives with his parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and mode of thought are Indian. This quote shows us that the so-called Indian problem is simply just their culture. This new Euro-Canadian population viewed the indigenous population as savages and as unfit parents with nothing valuable they could teach their children. This was the so-called Indian problem. This problem would be the focus of many bills and acts that would eventually be consolidated into the Indian Act. The origins of the Indian Act itself trace back to the Baggio Report of 1844. This report recommended that control over indigenous matters be centralized and that children should be sent to boarding schools away from the influence of their communities, family, and culture. That indigenous groups should be encouraged to assume the European concept of free enterprise and that land be individually owned under an indigenous land registry system in which they could not set or could sell to each other but not other non-indigenous people. This report laid the groundwork for the Indian Act of 1876. When the British North America Act, or what is now known as the Constitution Act of 1876 or 67 was issued, it gave under section 91-24 exclusive jurisdiction over Indians and land reserved for Indians to the federal government. With the Constitution in place, the federal government was placed in a position of conflicting interests. 
These conflicting interests are the fact that the federal government was now in control of Indians and land reserved for Indians, while at the same time being responsible for purchasing land and negotiating treaties for the crown, which caused issues with certain reserves, but we will get to that later. A few years after the Constitution Act of 1867 was put into place, the Indian Act of 1876 was created through the consolidation of separate pieces of pre-existing colonial legislation and passed under Section 91-24 of the Constitution. The most notable of these legislations being the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869. The Indian Act was an attempt to codify the rights promised to indigenous people by British King George III in the Proclamation of 1763, while at the same time enforcing the European standards of civilization. The purpose of the consolidation of these acts into the Indian Act was to, as was to, as stated by its drafters, to administer Indian affairs in such a way that the indigenous population would feel like they would be better off revoking their Indian status and joining mainstream civilization as full members. This philosophy that seems to have guided the way Indian affairs are handled by the federal government has negatively impacted the indigenous population of Canada in varying ways. <clears throat> With the creation of the Indian Act in 1876, many new systems were put into place. One of the systems that came from the Indian Act that is widely known exists are reserves, or the reserve system to be more precise. With the Indian Act, the, the Canadian government divine, defined reserves as land that has been set aside by the federal government for the use and benefit of an Indian band. Despite being allowed to live on the land given to them, indigenous people did not actually own any of the land on these reserves because the land is still classified as federal land and is held in trust for the band by the crown. The reserves themselves were often created on less than optimal land that was sometimes located outside the original territory the indigenous people were from. The reserves the indigenous populations were moved to were always smaller than the territory they were originally from. This reduction in territory caused issues with certain nations that had their lifestyle based around hunting and gathering. Having a greatly reduced living space very suddenly led to problems finding enough food. That coupled with having to learn new methods of hunting and gathering be due to being in new in, due to being in a new environment. Something of importance to note here is that indigenous people were not consulted on the creation of the reserve system in any way. Since their inception, certain reserves have been relocated due to some form of resource having been found on the land. This goes back to the point made earlier about how the federal government was put in a position of conflicting interests, with them being in control of Indians and land preserved or reserved for Indians, while at the same time res being responsible for purchasing land for the crown. With these two responsibilities, the federal government has to make a choice of whether the land is for their use and exploitation in the case of natural resources or for the living space of the for the indigenous population the government always chooses the former 
when something is of value is found on a reserve, the government walks on in and says, hey, nice stuff you found there. It's ours now. Beat it. When the relocations did happen, the people being relocated were never compensated for their houses and belongings. They couldn't bring in any way. Many indigenous people still live on reserves today, despite being able to leave, though this is very difficult for many reasons in certain situations. The federal government still technically owns the land they live on, so they may own the house, but not the, the land or the ground beneath it. This government control over the reserves has been a source of much conflict over the years between indigenous groups and both provincial and federal governments. Many of these problems have existed since the inception of the reserve system in the late 1800s. There is often not enough land for all the people to have housing, and in isolated areas, basic services like running water and electricity are still not available to this day which is just like it, how it would have been back in the 1800s. When the reserve system was created, there was an idea that these would only be temporary because they thought the entire indigenous population would become enfranchised. The idea of enfranchisement predates the Indian Act of 1876 and survived in some form until 1985. The word enfranchisement derives from the idea of franchisement, which eventually became the right to vote. This meant people within the franchise were expected to pay taxes and live off reserve, basically join mainstream society. This was pushed upon the indigenous populations through limiting things like any enfranchised person selling land or alcohol to a non-enfranchised person, and there was also a ban on any sort of train trade between enfranchised and non-enfranchised people, making it virtually impossible for a non-enfranchised person to make a living trading or selling, which had been which had become a part of their culture by that point due to them trading amongst themselves and with early European voyagers. Despite the idea of enfranchisement being abolished in nineteen eighty five, it already had indoctrinated many into a lifestyle they did not want to be a part of, but felt like they had to. This caused a loss of identity, language, and culture, and in many indigenous people has caused a gap in connection between the already enfranchised indigenous and the ones who did, held out. This gap in language, identity, and culture has no greater contributor than the now infamous residential school system which had the goal of, quote-unquote, killing the Indian in the child, as said by Duncan Campbell Scott in 1921. The residential school system itself was a group of 140 schools across the country that were funded by the federal government and run by the churches. More than 150,000 indigenous kids would attend these schools from the day they were opened in the late 19 or from the day they were opened until the, or in the late 1870s to the day the last one closed in 1996 in Saskatchewan. In 1884, 
day schools and residential schools became mandatory for kids age 7 to 15, and parents no longer had the choice between sending their kids to these schools or keeping them home. This is because if they decided to keep them home, they would be fined or even sent to prison. These schools were the federal government's direct attempt at assimilating the indigenous population into Canadian society. This meant they would have to give up their languages, spiritual beliefs, and cultural practices. Indigenous children were taken away from their families, culture, and traditions for months or even years at a time, and some did not come back at all. When kids arrived at these schools, their hair was cut short, and their cultural belongings and clothes were taken away by the staff. They were forced to wear European school uniforms, and the kids were segregated by gender and forbidden to speak to anyone of the opposite sex, and were physically abused if they did. Christianity was forced upon the children, and and in the morning after prayer, they would attend the class portion of school, while in the afternoon, the boys did farm labor, and the girls did domestic chores and cleaned. Girls only received a grade 5 education because it was expected they would become low-paid workers in Canadian society anyways. The churches who ran these schools would get paid by the federal government on a per-kid basis, so the more kids in the school, the more money the church gets. Despite being paid on a per-kid basis, The churches often did not provide enough food for the kids and often made them sleep in buildings that were scorching hot in the summer and freezing cold in the winter. The overcrowding and poor diet meant that diseases ran rampant, which caused many deaths at these schools. The disconnection from their families, culture, language, and community led to a great deal of suffering for many kids who attended these schools. This is not only due to the poor diet and rampant diseases, although this played a part, though. The main factor that contributes to the trauma that has come from these schools is the very common physical and sexual abuse that occurred. These horrible actions often caused kids to take their lives or run away and attempt to go home, which often also resulted in death. These these memories, the people who went to the residential schools, carry are life-altering. They remember feelings of loneliness, hunger, and fear. They remember being told their culture was strange and inferior, and that their beliefs and practices were wrong, and that they would never be successful. Aside from the heinous acts committed at residential schools that have come to light in the recent years, there are less visible consequences that still persist to this day. A loss of confidence and culture are very apparent today and is a direct effect of the residential school system. Many of the people who attended the residential schools left them with very minimal education and a belief that it was shameful to be indigenous. Many lost the ability to speak their native language, which prohibited them from speaking with their parents, and most notably their grandparents, who would be a great source of knowledge for them within their communities. Many people after leaving residential school found it hard to fit into mainstream mainstream Canadian society. They had a low-level education and faced racism and discrimination when they tried to find work. 
Now being unable to fit into into traditional community life while also not being accepted into mainstream society, many felt they did not belong anywhere. Many of the people who attended residential schools now experience a variety of horrible psychological effects, with the most common of these being PTSD, which comes with terror, nightmares, and flashbacks to past traumatic events or experiences. The other more common psychological effect is survivor's guilt, which occurs for some after surviving a traumatic experience that others did not. Sadly, the effects of residential schools are not only felt by those who attended. Intergenerational trauma are the effects of traumatic experiences being passed on to future generations. Children and even grandchildren would grow up feeling something is wrong, but not know what it is because the parents and grandparents would live with the pain and grief in silence. With the traumatic effects, loss of culture, and identity in language that has occurred with the implementation of the Indian Act, the question of why it is still around rears its head. An obstacle in the way of the abolishment of the Indian Act is the age-old federal versus provincial jurisdiction and cooperation issue. There are issues here because the federal government controls the indigenous people on reserves under the Constitution Act of 1867, not the Indian Act of 1876, while the, pro- while the provincial government controls the land and resources. So if the Indian Act was dismantled without anything else being put in place, all it would do is leave the indigenous populations in the same place they were before, only now without any help from the out, any outside help from the federal government, because they would have no authority because they'd have no authority to dictate how the provinces share land, resources, and decision making benefits. This would essentially leave people on reserves in a worse situation than they were before, while being at the mercy of the provincial governments. Another obstacle in the way of dismantling the Indian Act is the fact that it it would require massive shifts on both the government and public side. The Canadian state is built on three theories. The first being that it owns all the land and resources. The second, that it has decision-making authority over the use of land and resources. And finally, that it gets all the benefits or gets to decide who gets the benefits from the use of the land and resources. To get rid of the Indian Act, the Canadian government and public would have to acknowledge that all Indigenous people in Canada are co-owners, co-decision-makers, and co-benefactors from the land and resources of the country. This is a major obstacle because we require the government and public to learn that sharing is caring, which may be an obstacle for more people than you would expect, and that wasn't even really taking the government into consideration. Another unforeseen obstacle in the way of dismantling the Indian Act is because even if you dismantle the Indian Act, indigenous people are still Indians under Section 91 dash 24 of the Constitution Act of 1867, which still leaves them under the 
under federal jurisdiction with or without the Indian Act. So effectively, the Indian, if the Indian Act was repealed with nothing to replace it, all the Indian, all the indigenous people who were living on reserves would not be entitled to any provincial benefits like health care without federal legislation to provide them any. Repealing the Indian Act in, in the manner of simply doing away with it without providing an alternative is like taking the indigenous people out of the frying pan and throwing them into the fire. So in conclusion, it is clear that the Indian Act of 1876 and its attempts at assimilating the indigenous population of Canada into the Euro-Canadian population have had devastating negative effects that have lasted over a hundred years. These negative effects from stem from the Indian Act's direct implications and other issues that are not yet widely known that could come with its abolishment. There is hope for a better future, though. Just recently, on October 24, 2019, British Columbia became the first province in Canada to pass a UN Indigenous Rights Declaration. With this, the indigenous people of BC will now be included in things like development projects and will help make decisions in regards to their land and will be able to ensure livable standards on their land. This is a big step for Canada, as this UN bill has always been a very contentious topic politically. But now this has passed, we should start to see other provinces and territories begin to pass it over time until it gets accepted federally and eventually replaces the Indian Act. This would be a big step forward in reconciling for all the trauma that is still felt to this very day and shapes the lives of this country's first inhabitants. We owe it to them, at the very least, to seeing them as equals. And that was today's episode of the Grady Pratt Experience. I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you later.